It's Monday, and that so happens to be the day that I like to talk about monsters. I'm Jeff Arbuckle, and this is Monster Mondays, presented by Film Seizure. This week's Universal Classics Monsters sequel, the last at least for now, connects a lot of dots between the other movies covered this month and fills a gap that has been left open for far too long. I believe this is the first film done on Monster Mondays that stars the indelible Vincent Price. Why it took so long to get to him, I'm not sure. It's probably because he wasn't often in monster movies so much as he was just a villain or a guy that was in a horror movie. I suppose I could have done The Last Man on Earth or The Fly or even talked about Michael Jackson's Thriller video, but I saved it all up for The Invisible Man Returns, a movie that he only appears on screen for like a minute right at the very end. Price was relatively new to movies at this point. He was born in St. Louis and eventually got into theater, and uh, by the mid-30s or so, he was working relatively steadily in theater, and he found his way to Hollywood around 1938. And he found steady work there as well. Of course, by the 50s and 60s, his work with Roger Corman as well as other directors would make him a master of American horror, and he really relished in it. He truly enjoyed doing horror because... He knew that was a way for him to stay remembered as an actor. If he scared you as a child or a teenager, he likely would be remembered by you as an adult. Now otherwise, he was known as a very kind man and a wonderful presence. He fought hard against racial and religious prejudice in the 1950s. And quite frankly, that was a time when the fight was really, really difficult. He was deeply supportive of his daughter when she came out as gay and was very vocal and an opponent to some anti-gay rights activists in the 1970s. He even became one of the earliest celebrities to discuss the AIDS epidemic publicly. In fact, his daughter discussed that Price was indeed bisexual in interviews later in her life. But he was so well-liked that even as a Democrat, Republican President Dwight Eisenhower appointed Price to the Indian Arts and Crafts Board, a surprise to the actor. But honestly, that's really what happens when you're just a good person. Your deeds tend to transcend your political party. Honestly, we probably need a little bit more of that today. As for connections between this film and the others that I talked about this month, the first is actually in Price's filmography. His third film, just two months prior to the release of The Invisible Man Returns, was Tower of London. That starred Boris Karloff and Basil Rathbone from Son of Frankenstein. It was even directed by that film's director as well. The Invisible Man Returns has a supporting actor by the name of Cecil Kellaway, who was a British South African actor. And not only did Kellaway get nominated twice for Oscars later in his career, but he also played the great Silvani in The Mummy's Hand. But maybe the most interesting connection between this film and the previous films comes in the form of the leading lady of The Invisible Man Returns, Nan Gray. Gray, four years earlier, played Lily in Dracula's Daughter. You might remember as the despondent homeless girl who became the subject of Countess Zaleska's paintings, but ends up drained of blood, catatonic, and ultimately dies from the trauma. She is also most often connected to what most people believe to be one of the more seductive and sensual lesbian scenes in early cinema, despite practically seeing nothing at all but her bare shoulders. So that does it for the connections between this and the other movies. Oh, wait, Revenge of the Creature. Um, 
Like, well, I mean, both that and The Invisible Man Returns were released by Universal. Look, I'm sure somebody, some peon or something at Universal worked on both films, but I couldn't find any connectors real easily, so that's probably because the two films were 15 years apart. But anyway, the movie begins with friends of Sir Jeffrey Radcliffe, who is Vincent Price in this movie, consoling each other over how Jeffrey is scheduled to be executed for the murder of his brother Michael. This is a murder he did not commit, though. Before his execution, Jeffrey's good friend Dr. Frank Griffin is allowed to visit him and slips him some of the invisibility drug, allowing him to basically escape and get away from being hanged. Now, of course, Griffin is a person of great interest because of his brother's work with the invisibility serum a few years back. Another person of interest is Jeffrey's fiancée, Helen, played by Nan Gray. Now, Jeffrey meets Helen at a cabin that is sometimes used by Dr. Griffin. However, Frank is working hard on the antidote, which he does not have yet. That leaves Jeffrey invisible and slowly going insane. Before Griffin finds an antidote, Jeffrey becomes obsessed with trying to find his brother's killer. Now, there's another problem, though. With very little other than his own knowledge of Jack Griffin's invention, Scotland Yard Inspector Sampson knows what's going on. He knows instantly what's going on. He doesn't have all the pieces to make the arrests, but he knows Griffin is a friend of the Radcliffe family and his brother designed an experimental invisibility fluid. So he's hot on Jeffrey's tail too, as well as watching Griffin closely. Now Griffin gets a visit from Willie Spears. Spears is played by Alan Napier. Now Alan Napier played Alfred on the 60s Batman TV show. Spears is a bit of an unseemly sort. He tries to muscle Griffin over some medical recommendations over a closure of one of the mines or something, and Jeffrey is there uh, to give some blood to Griffin to work on the serum, or on the anecdote for the serum, and overhears everything. He doesn't believe that a drunken loser like Spears has any right to speak with authority to Griffin. The doc explains that with Jeffrey out of the way, he was able to uh, take this night watchman, he being uh, Cobb, the cousin of Jeffrey, who's who's basically left in charge now that both of the brothers are, are gone, one dead, one in prison, and essentially took this watchman, who hardly did his job all that well to begin with, and was promoted to superintendent. Jeffrey decides to mess with Spears a little bit to see what information he can get from this man because that seems pretty suspicious that a guy who most of the time showed up to work drunk wasn't a very good night watchman is suddenly the superintendent of a mine. So to do this, he pretends to be his own ghost to scare Spears. He claims he escaped jail but fell into the marsh and died and now he's back to haunt him. Spears admits that uh, he was promoted as payment for remaining quiet after witnessing Jeffrey's brother's murder at the hands of his cousin, Richard Cobb. Jeffrey decides to pay a visit to Cobb, and Cobb is talking to Helen and hoping that she would reveal where Jeffrey is, but Jeffrey reveals that he's already in the room and knows he was the one who killed Michael. Now, Cobb decides to shoot his way out, and he tries to shoot Jeffrey, but when he runs into Inspector Sampson, Cobb kind of looks like an insane man, saying that Jeffrey is there and invisible. Sampson orders uh, all of his cops to check out several various places on Cobb's property, and with the pouring rain outside, it makes it hard for Jeffrey to leave because the police are surrounding it and the rain will reveal him. 
Inside, the cops try to use smoke to try to reveal him. Jeffrey, through some quick thinking, knocks out a cop and dresses as the policeman and covers his face with the gas mask they were all wearing to protect themselves from the smoke that they were spraying around. Now, Jeffrey may have escaped Samson, but he's not escaping the growing insanity. He's starting to sound an awful lot like Jack Griffin did in the original. He's talking about taking over the government and having worshippers and followers because he will be unstoppable. And he's actually sounding really, really scary about all this, too. Griffin drugs a drink to knock Jeffrey out, and he wants to give Jeffrey up to Samson because he has evidence that he is innocent, but Helen kind of thinks that he might be imagining it. And Jeffrey escapes and goes to Cobbs and holds him at gunpoint to take him to Spears. Meanwhile, Spears is tied up and left in a precarious situation that might cause him to slip and be hanged. And when Spears starts spilling the story, Cobb indeed kicks the chair out from under him and hangs Spears. After a scuffle, Cobb flees and Jeffrey chases him through the town. Now this gets the attention of the police who are scouring the town and it also causes Jeffrey to be shot by Samson while he struggles with Cobb. Cobb has a fatal fall at the coal mine and he admits to what he did to Helen before dying and ultimately Jeffrey ends up at the hospital where he's given blood transfusions by several of his adoring workers or co-workers or something and that ultimately reverses the invisibility serum and brings back his sanity. So let's get to my three things that I like about The Invisible Man Returns. First up, I like how this movie is more of a murder mystery than anything. Jeffrey's been set up and he wants to use being invisible to try to clear his name. Not only that, but there's a ticking clock element. The longer Jeffrey remains invisible, the closer he gets to insanity. This is the exact same serum that the original Invisible Man used after all, so improvements haven't been made and, you know, but they had no choice to use it to get Jeffrey out of prison before his execution. So it's a fun little change of pace for the genre that makes for a little bit more excitement. I also like to point out that they don't have the cure for it at the end of this movie either. Like, it's, it is a foregone conclusion. If you use the invisibility serum, you're going to go insane eventually. And there's no way, or at least there's no way that they've been able to find yet to solve it. Second, I really like the Inspector Samson character a lot. He reminds me a little bit of a TV detective like Columbo, who's already a few steps ahead of the supposed criminal. Uh, he is an antagonist, but he's not a bad guy. He's only doing his job and doesn't know that Cobb was the real murderer. I also like that he is constantly telling people to smoke a cigar and they'll be able to see the Invisible Man from the smoke. That then telegraphs his plan later to use smoke to reveal Jeffrey inside Cobb's house. And even though he almost kills Jeffrey at the end, you forgive him. And it's again because he's just a guy doing his job with what he knows. He was you know, Jeffrey was arrested for the murder of his brother, found guilty, and then later escaped from jail. So Samson has to do his job. Thirdly, remember that Claude Rains became a huge star by way of his booming voice in The Invisible Man. I'm guessing they thought about that when casting Vincent Price as Jeffrey Radcliffe. He's only seen for about a minute on screen in this film, but he still chews the scenery with his booming voice. Vincent Price has one of those voices that is extremely recognizable, and this movie being fairly successful likely has a lot to do with people becoming familiar with that voice. 
It's something that for the rest of his long Hollywood career would be remembered and enjoyed. In fact, in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, Price plays the Invisible Man at the end. He's just not credited for it in the cast. So that wraps up this week's Monster Mondays. Don't forget to check out new episodes of Film Seizure every Wednesday and a new installment of Monster Mondays each Monday on FilmSeizure.com, as well as places where fine podcasts are found, like SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Additionally, hop on over to Facebook and Twitter and follow us by just searching for Film Seizure. You can also check out new posts at my website, bmovieenema.com, each and every Friday. So until next week, stay spooky.